You're listening to Guitars and Granola Bars, episode 48. Thank you so much for joining me here on Guitars and Granola Bars, Music Therapists Talk Motherhood. I'm your host, Rachel Rambach, and this podcast is for music therapists and anyone else balancing a passion-fueled career with being a mom. In this episode, I'm chatting with Jamie George. Jamie is the owner and director of the George Center for Music Therapy in Atlanta, Georgia. The George Center employs eight full-time music therapists and serves all ages and multiple populations. The George Center bills insurance for most of their individual clients. Jamie is the proud mommy of little Steven, who turned 19 months old on December 1st. Jamie, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. So why don't we start with you giving us some background about your career and how you became a music therapist? Yeah, well, how I became a music therapist, I um, I was actually just about to graduate with a undergraduate degree in um, performing arts in a BFA in music theater performance when I even found out that music therapy was a job option. And that was because my grandfather had Alzheimer's and he was in an assisted living facility that had a music therapist. And I went in and saw her working and I thought, I can't believe that she's getting paid to do this job. This is awesome. And I had always known, um, you know, what music did for my grandfather, but just kind of putting all the pieces together. And I thought, well, I'm not going to change my major at this point, but I'll definitely go back and get my master's and do this. And I did about five years later. I Well, I moved to New York and performed for a while and did that. And then I went back to grad school and got my master's in equivalency in music therapy at UGA, University of Georgia. Um, I did my internship in Fulton County Schools here in Atlanta, and I was the assistant director of therapy, pediatric therapy for three years, and then I started the George Center in 2010. I have chills, Jamie, because your story is so similar to mine. I was a year away from graduating with um, a degree in vocal performance, and yeah. um, I didn't know about music therapy either, and my grandmother also had Alzheimer's disease, and I had always seen the way that music affected her positively, and I came across music therapy in a Google search and, um, you know, kind of put that together with what I had seen with my grandma, and that was when I realized, like, this is what I need to be doing, and that, yeah. that completely changed my future. I think it just made it that much more special to see a family member um, benefit so greatly from it. You know, we can talk about it all day long and we all know how we use music therapeutically for ourselves, but to actually see it affecting a family member like that, I think was the most powerful introduction I could have had to the profession. Um, and what's crazy is that my, I got my undergraduate degree at Western Michigan university, which has a huge, awesome music therapy. Oh my gosh. And I was in the school of music all the time, but I never, I never even knew the program was there. I never knew that it was such a great school to go to for music therapy. Oh, how funny. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I completely agree with having seen it firsthand and see the benefits of it and how it really does work right before your eyes. That yeah. was a big impetus for me to, you know, completely change my course and and pursue music therapy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us about what happened after you finished your internship and went on to work in the professional world. 
Yeah. Um, well, so I, I, I think I already mentioned I was the assistant director at Therabeat for three years. And then, um, and so I was doing music therapy, mostly there with early intervention um, through Babies Can't Wait here in the state of Georgia. And then I had a lot of pediatric clients with developmental delays, autism, um, mostly children with special needs. And um, I started the George Center in 2010. At that point, I had taken a part-time position in Fulton County Schools. And so it was really the perfect opportunity for me because I could work part-time in the school system and have a steady paycheck while I was building a caseload and building the company and, um, you know, kind of getting my feet wet in private practice. And it worked out beautifully. I stayed part-time in Fulton County for the first three years while I built the George Center. And then I went full-time with my private practice in 2013. Um, but in five years, the George Center's gone from just me working out of the trunk of my car to eight full-time music therapists and two administrative staff. And we're about to hire our ninth in January um, with an awesome new clinic space. So that is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. It's, yeah. It's pretty crazy to me, too, when we talk about how quickly time flies. I can't believe it's been five years. I feel like I've squeezed 20 into five years, but it's only been two years, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And that, you know, spoken as a true business owner and a mom, I think both of those <laughs> things go hand in hand with time flying like that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's amazing. And again, the parallels are a little bit scary because my my um, career path looked very similar to that where I was building my private practice while I was working in the school setting. And um, it was really nice because you did have that steady, you know, you knew you were going to get a paycheck and you knew that the money was going to come in even if private practice was still um, – you were still working on building that up. So, well, and it was also perfect because in the school system, obviously, I could be done by three o'clock in the afternoon, sometimes two, depending on which schools I was in. So, that was right when I got my busiest in private practice, right? Because of all the kids that needed after school. Oh, absolutely. So, it worked out beautifully for me. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I would leave my school job and get in my car and drive all around to all my clients' homes. And, you know, do that until seven o'clock at night. And it was, it was a long day, but it was great. You know, it's a long day, but when you're 25, I mean. Oh yeah, exactly. (laughs) That was the best, that was the best way to get my feet wet, get experience, really understand. And, you know, there's something to be said for home visits and, and there's something to be said for clinic visits. With home visits, I really feel like I learned a lot about the families that I was serving and the dynamic and how. Um, how having a child with special needs affected the whole family. And um, I think it just made me a better therapist long-term. But the clinic space is so great because you don't have those home distractions, you know? Absolutely. The clients that are coming to the clinic, they're coming for therapy. We have all of our tools at our disposal. You know, we can get anything. If something's not working, we can run in the next room and grab a xylophone or run, you know, and kind of change plans. And um, I'm not glued to what's in my car. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I there are definitely advantages and disadvantages to both. And that was something that I really missed after I moved into my clinic space after having been going to my clients' homes for so long is that you really did get to see the family dynamic and you got to know the families a lot better being in their homes. 
Um, But I feel like, like you said, that that did make me a better therapist and kind of, you know, just um, taught you to roll with the punches because you never knew what was going to happen in that setting. Exactly. And I feel today now like some of my employees that haven't had that opportunity, I feel like they're missing something, you know, that by, by missing that opportunity that they aren't getting the same education and they aren't getting the same experience as I did coming into private practice, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because like you said, I mean, it's just so convenient to have your own space and to have everything right there at your fingertips. Well, and for scheduling, you know, so that I can have clients back to back and not have to oh, yes. travel <laughs> time in between and yeah. I don't miss those days for that reason. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I know, um, well, you aren't in Chicago. You're well outside of Chicago. Right. We are, we're about three hours south of Chicago. Yeah. For me in Atlanta, you know, to say that you live in the metro Atlanta area and you work in the metro Atlanta area, or certainly that you provide services in the metro Atlanta area, I mean, there could be a two-hour commute that's still in the metro Atlanta area. So. Oh, I can't even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's bad for us when it's like when it takes 15 minutes to get across town. So <laughs> I cannot relate to that. <laughs> uh, so in the midst of working at your part-time job and then building your private practice, at what point did you and your husband decide that the time was right to start a family? Yeah. Well, I was already um, – Done with Fulton County Schools. So I had gone full-time um, with the private practice. Okay. And I'll be honest, we were always kind of on the fence about whether or not we were going to have children. Um, my husband is 10 years older than I am. And so the impetus for us really in having kids was, oh my gosh, we're getting old. And if we're going to do this, we need to do it now or we're not going to have the opportunity anymore. And we really didn't want to miss out on that life experience. We felt like if we never had a child, we would be missing out on something really big in life. And I think we both are the kind of people that we want to experience everything, you know? Um, So that was it for me. And so many moms I talked to, you know, they knew their whole lives. They wanted to be a mom or they had baby fever and they really wanted a baby. That wasn't it for us. We just felt like, um, we, we needed to try it. We needed to see what parenthood was like. And my husband at that point was 45 and I was 35. Well, I'm sorry. I was 34 when I got pregnant. I was 35 when I had my son. Um, and we thought if we're going to do this, we need to do it now. So yeah, it's the right time. (laughs) And did you feel like building your business was something that was also kind of stopping you from doing that sooner? Um, No, I don't because I think if we had decided – I think if I had been 35 and he had been 45 a couple years earlier, we still would have made that decision when we made it. It was more about our ages and not wanting to wait too much longer. Um, I was lucky. By the time we decided to try to have babies, we – I had already built the – I mean, at that point, I had six music therapists working as employees at the George Center. I had a billing manager as well. So – I was at a point, too, where I knew that going on maternity leave that I had a good group of people that could keep things running in my absence. Right. And that's a huge advantage that most music therapists that that work for themselves or that have their own businesses don't have the luxury of being able to take that time off and know that their business is still going. Because for a lot of us, you know, we take that time off and everything comes to a halt. So we'll talk more about that when we get to that point. Um, but let's talk about being pregnant and 
not only working <laughs> clinically as a music therapist, but also running a business. What was that experience like? Yeah. Um, for the most part, I had a pretty easy pregnancy. Um, I was pretty sick in the first trimester, but I worked through that. Um, and then second trimester was great. Third trimester was great. Um, I think the hardest part for me was probably the moving, the dancing, you know, being as active as I always was in my sessions and keeping clients engaged. Um, but really I didn't have too many challenges there. I think the biggest challenge for me was when I had my son who came almost six weeks early. So I was not prepared and none of my employees were prepared. I ended up getting put on bed rest the day, I mean, the morning of at seven 30 in the morning, I went to the doctor for my weekly appointment and she said, you're going on bed rest immediately. And I said, no, I can't. We have the biggest event tonight that we do all year. And she said, no, you are going on bed rest immediately and you won't be there. And this is a special needs performing arts group that we do. It's called Any Dream Will Do. We have 20 kids um, and teens with lots of different special needs. And we rehearse all year long and then we put on a staged costume lit performance in April of every year. And it was that night. So we had, you know, a couple hundred people coming, this huge performance of which I was leading several activities. And I was told, you're going home on bed rest and you can't be there. So I had to call my whole staff and say, you have to do it without me. <laughs> so they all had to cancel their afternoon to sit and have a meeting and figure out how they were going to pull it off without me being there. And it ended up probably being the best performance we've ever had. I think just um, sheer nerves and, <laughs> and just trying to get through it. But that was probably the hardest part. And then, you know, the fact that I was out of work six weeks before I thought I would be. So I really, I thought I had six more weeks to plan for my maternity leave and transition clients and make sure everyone's notes were ready and shareable and all that stuff. And that didn't happen. Um, so we just had to roll with the punches. I was in the NICU with my son for two weeks. Um, so I was just really unprepared to peace out so early. Yeah, I can't imagine how just challenging and emotionally um, challenging that was. How did you how did you handle that emotionally? Uh, that's that's a harder question to answer. As far as work was concerned, um, I was a little bit bitter in the beginning because. You know, for the two weeks that I was in the NICU, I was spending a lot of time on the computer trying to get notes to other therapists that had to immediately take on my caseload and trying to tie up those loose ends that I thought I had more time to tie up. Um, so I remember that time when he was in the NICU thinking, I can't believe I'm spending this time working right now, but I have to um, because I because those were just things that I had not gotten together. I thought I had so much more time. Um now, once we were out of the NICU and home, um, my maternity leave, you know, I worked throughout my maternity leave, but I had a ton of flexibility. So I'm not going to say I was bitter throughout my whole maternity leave, but those first couple of weeks were pretty upsetting to me um, because I had to do a lot of work while he was in the NICU. Um, but I also had a really traumatic birth. So I think when you ask how I was doing emotionally, it had more to do with my son's birth and my doctor and that whole situation then work. Sure, sure. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable at all talking about um, more more of why he came early or why they think he came early? And absolutely, absolutely. And I feel like I actually feel pretty passionate about talking about it more because, 
it's one of those stories that when I start telling it, I hear so many other women telling the same stories. Yeah. So, you know, my son's 19 months now and I still hold a lot of anger. Um, I was actually diagnosed with PTSD about six months after he was born. Um, and so, yeah, I'm happy to tell you about what happened. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear. And I, I find that so often when guests on the show have opened up about things that um, that usually aren't talked about. It's, you know, people come out of the woodwork and say, oh my gosh, I had the same experience. And I'm so glad to hear somebody else say it because nobody else is talking about it. And these yeah. are the things that other women need to hear and in order to feel supported and like people understand what they're going through. I, I could not agree more. And I, um, I see a really scary trend in the birthing of babies these days that, uh, you know, plays into what happened to me. And I feel like people talk about it, but on a surface level and aren't really prepared for it when it's themselves and their family and their child and they're about to have a baby. They just assume it won't happen to them. Um, but I, I, I mean, I was bullied. I was, um, I was put on bed rest because my blood pressure was borderline. I was never preeclampsic um, and I was never diagnosed with preeclampsia, but my blood pressure was just on that borderline to where as long as I stayed on bed rest, it was totally fine. But as you can imagine, as we were preparing for that performance, I was really active um, and really stressed at the time. And so that's why they put me on bed rest. And I was going in at that point every two to three days for an ultrasound for them to check everything out. And um, they saw there was high blood pressure in the umbilical cord. So they um, had me go to the hospital and they wanted to keep me for 24 hours for a urine output test, which is what they do to test for preeclampsia. So I went in and I did the 24-hour urine output test and it came back fine. No preeclampsia. My blood pressure was fine the whole time I was there. They did another um, ultrasound the next day and the blood pressure looked fine in the umbilical cord. So they said, no problem. We're going to send you home on bed rest. Um, at that point, it was the evening. So they wanted to keep me that night for observation and they said they were going to send me home the next day. The next morning, we woke up at 7.30 and the nurse was in our room with consent forms. And we said, why? And she said, well, we need to be moving toward delivery. And we said, why? <laughs> and she said, we need to be moving toward delivery. And that was the only answer we ever got. Um, my doctor never came to see me. Um, I. What was funny is we talked about and we talked to a doula and ended up not using one, which is one of the biggest regrets I'll ever have for my whole life. <laughs> um, but for three hours, we fought with the nurse saying, no, we weren't going to sign the consent forms. And um, finally, my doctor called me on the phone and asked me why I was being such a problem and was refusing to sign the forms. And I said, because no one will tell me why we have to deliver this child today. They were giving me an option to either induce, which could take up to three days because I was not effaced or dilated or anything um, and not prepared at all, or uh, doing a C-section that afternoon, like at lunchtime. And we fought with them and we fought with them and then it was causing me and my husband to fight and they um, – and my doctor said, you know, if you don't make this decision, I am going to report you as putting your child's life in danger. And I said, <laughs> why? Why am I putting that? He's not in distress. I'm not in distress. I was told I was going home on bed rest. She said, um, you know, those are nurses telling you, not your doctor. I'm your doctor. I'm telling you that you need to deliver. 
and we gave in. And it's one of those, I mean, I look back and I just think, why? Why didn't I just leave the hospital? Why didn't I just run out of the hospital and find another doctor and find another? But in that moment, um, you know, you, you want to trust your doctor. I thought that I did trust my doctor. I thought she knew um, what my intent was and birth plan and all that stuff, all the stuff that you hear. Um, and it just, it all went wrong. And we, um, as soon as we agreed to the C-section, which is, I had to fight with my husband over because I felt like he was, it was so early and he was so small. I didn't want to induce and possibly have to have a C-section anyway. Um, and what's crazy is I was really hoping for a natural childbirth. I did not want any drugs, even if I did a vaginal birth. So, um, but we went for the C-section and as soon as he was born, he couldn't hold his glucose and his birth weight was too low because it was six weeks early and he went straight to the NICU. And I had my husband go with him. Um, I didn't get to see him for three hours and it felt like <laughs> three days that I had to wait to see him. Um, and I was so drugged up on morphine, I don't remember the first time that I saw him. So um, after that, my doctor never came to see me in recovery. Um, she peeked her head around a curtain a couple days later while I was breastfeeding my son to say, how is everything? And I said, it's not good. I'd like to talk to you. I still don't understand why I had my son. Um, those questions were never answered. And when I asked for my medical records, the day that I delivered him, all the medical records show I did not have preeclampsia. And then on the, on the record of why he was born by cesarean, it said because of preeclampsia. But all the records show that I didn't have it. So that is surprisingly the short story. I could go on and on and on about all of the things that went on even after that um, with my son, but that's... I, I'm just listening to you tell this story. My stomach is just in knots because <laughs> I cannot imagine a medical staff, especially a doctor who you had been seeing for months and months, I'd imagine, and... Yes had been taking care of you up, up until that point in your pregnancy, why was it that they were not giving you a, a straight answer? Did you ever find that out? No, no. And my husband said, his quote was, it felt like we just bought a used car. Like once it was done, we never saw her again. There was no, and she, you know, after the fact, when I started finding out more, she has a very, very high cesarean rate. Mm. Um, she was there that day doing two other C-sections, so it was extremely convenient for me. I, I think in the end, it was convenience. She did not want me to stay on bed rest because that would have meant she might have been called in more if I had to go back to the hospital. She didn't want to deal with that for a couple of weeks, you know, which was they, – they were saying they wanted to send me home on bed rest for two weeks and then bring me back in at 30 – well, close to 37 weeks gestation. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I think it was convenience. But, no, we never got an answer. Wow. I still – Did you ever consider taking legal action? We still are considering taking legal action. I did talk to a lawyer, um, and he did say he would take on the case. And for me, it's been, you know, because I've been dealing with the trauma, it, it's been hard for me to decide. On one hand, I don't ever – I know that she's doing this to other women. I know, and not just her, doctors all over the world are doing this. The cesarean section rate has gone up so drastically and 
not because of medical necessity. And I understand that some women choose C-sections and that's their choice. Absolutely, that is their choice if they if they want it. But so many women that I talk to, I have a neighbor who um, had her son by C-section because her doctor said that he was measuring really big and that they should go ahead and schedule a C-section. And then the baby ended up being six pounds. Um, so what, th there was no medical necessity behind that. It was just in case, you know, um, and she just trusted her doctor and trusted that they did the right thing. But he ended up being in the NICU as well because his lungs weren't fully developed. So he was born too early. You know, who knows? That baby might have stayed in there for 42 weeks baking, <laughs> you know, and I right. say the same thing about my son. If, if nature had been able to take its course, how thing, how might things have been very different? Right. Right. And I'm lucky. He's super healthy now. He is developmentally doing great. Um, you know, as music therapists, we know 50% of babies in the NICU come out with special needs um, or some kind of developmental delay. So I feel very lucky where that's concerned. But um, I just haven't been able to, on one hand, I, um, I want to take her to court because I don't want this to happen with anyone else. And on the other hand, I don't know if I want to live through it again. Right, because that, that it would be the case. I mean, you'd be having to, you know, minute by minute go through the entire process again. And that's would be yeah. – it seems like that would be really, really traumatic to do that again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that because, yeah, like you said, I think that does happen so often. And um, it's something that we need to hear about and we need to talk about so that it doesn't happen to people as – as often as it does unneedlessly. Yeah. I, you know, going back to the whole doula thing, and I know that you used a doula, and I, I think I've mentioned to you before just in reading your birth story online, both of them actually. Um, I remember reading Parker's birth story, and, and this is part of the trauma for me, and feeling, and I'm going to get upset talking about it now, feeling like I had been cheated out of, I mean, that was such a beautiful story. Um, and I just don't want that to happen to other women and other families and other babies. I mean, I think if, if my son had not had to go in the NICU and those first few weeks of his life, all of those heel sticks and all of those IVs and just not being home with us, it's, um, it's a hard thing to think back on and, and realize that. I could have said no. I should have said no. I should have ran from that hospital. Um, so I have guilt in that as well. Right. But I mean, you can't you can't feel too guilty because we're taught that we should trust our doctors and that they know best for us. I mean, we're not doctors. They are. And when they tell us something, especially when it comes to the health of our child, our unborn child, you know, those are the people that we should trust. And yeah. So for you to put that guilt on yourself, I mean, that's, that guilt is misplaced because it it was through no fault of your own that that well, happened. Well, if I had it to do all over again, I would recommend to every <laughs> music therapist and every mother and every parent out there to get a doula just so you feel like you have an advocate, Yeah, you know? It, absolutely. I, I did use a doula for both of my um, births and it was amazing because – you know, you, you don't understand as somebody who is not a medical professional, you don't understand all of the things that, that are happening necessarily. And so to have somebody there that's on your team and that is there just for you 
and is able to translate all of those things was amazing. And so, yeah, I definitely second your recommendation. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to that long story. Oh my gosh. No, thank you for opening up and sharing that. I really appreciate that. So you are actually a NICU music therapist yourself. So what was that experience like with Stephen being in the NICU and you having had experience in that setting? Well, I am convinced that music therapy is the reason why my son was out in two weeks. Um, he got out, he was discharged from the NICU much earlier than anyone expected him to be. Um, he was three pounds, 15 ounces when he was born. And so, and everyone who's had a baby knows that you can expect the child to lose weight before they gain weight after they're born. And that's very normal. That's the expectation. Um, but that's not what happened to my son. My son gained weight before he lost weight. And and all of the NICU nurses were shocked at that. They were all preparing me for he's going to go down, you know, the, the next weigh-in. It'll be lower. It'll be lower. And it wasn't. He was above four pounds on the next weigh-in. So um, I'm convinced that that was because of music therapy. And as soon – I was also really lucky. It might have been because the hospital knew that I was going to go postal on them if they didn't allow it <laughs> because of what had happened. But they let me stay in the parent suite all two weeks that he was in the NICU. So I never left the hospital, um, which was amazing. Like I, well, you never left? You stayed that I ne- whole time? I never, I never left. I ne- wow. At one point – I walked outside the building and walked around just to get some fresh air, but I never left that building and I wouldn't have. That's the thing. If I hadn't been in the parent suite, I'd have been sleeping in my car in the waiting room. I, I think they knew I was not leaving that child. Um, but I was like, the parent suite was attached to the NICU. And so I was there for every feeding. Um, I was there for most of his diaper changes. Um, I was able to do music when they were doing IV changes and things like that. I was there the whole time. So um, I, I'm convinced that music therapy is the reason why he gained weight before he lost it. I'm convinced that music therapy, he latched immediately. He was a great feeder. Um, he, he just, he thrived. He blossomed. And they told me to expect to be in the NICU for a month. And we were out in two weeks. That's amazing. <laughs> Now, it also gave me a new perspective because it's very different being in the NICU as a mother than it is as a music therapist. It was much harder to do music therapy with my own child than someone else's, um, which I think just gave me perspective again on being a better music therapist, on really understanding the caregiver point of view and the parent point of view. How did you approach it differently as the parent as opposed to you had previously as just the music therapist? Well, you know, I mean, I've held lots of babies in the NICU and worked with lots of babies in the NICU, but I was more nervous holding and touching and working with my own child, um, which is something I wouldn't have – you would think, well, it's your own child, then you feel very comfortable because they're yours. But um, And, of course, I, I ended up getting to that point, but I think just being a new mom, your first child, and him being so small – um, and thinking I'm not just responsible for his music therapy here. I'm, I was responsible for his music therapy and his breastfeeding and, you know, and, and all of his attention and care. And by the end, um, that last week that he was there, I, I guess I was the independent mom there and they really just kind of let me take the lead on going in for feedings and diaper changes and all that stuff. And would just come in if there was an issue, 
um, with heart rate or oxygen saturation or anything like that. So, um, I think it was really great training for me, but it, it was, it was weird to me that I felt more nervous with my own child than I did others. Yeah. That's surprising um, to me too, to hear that. It was a great advocacy opportunity for me. So, because I had the whole neonatology team, <laughs> you know, on, on, um, team days when they were treat doing, um, you know, their team rounds every morning, I was able to have all the neonatologists, all the nurses and tell them about music therapy, what I was doing and why it worked. And I brought in some articles for them. So it ended up being a really great opportunity to educate them on NICU music therapy as well. Yeah, no kidding. Now, did this hospital have a music therapy program? No, they had a harpist come in and play harp ah. for the babies once a week. Um, so that was where the advocacy part came in. Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, I'm still in um, conversations with them as well as another hospital here on adding a music therapy department. It's been a lot of bureaucracy um, and a lot of different departments I'm getting through, but they're still showing a lot of interest. And I actually have a meeting set up with them in January to go back nice. in and present. So, Well, good luck. Thanks. Yeah, I'm sure that your advocacy efforts made a huge difference. Just getting to that point, I know um, I've been working with my hospital for the last um, almost a year and a half now, and we're still yeah. <laughs> getting lots of red tape. So, Well, and I'll tell you, there's a hospital here, Northside Hospital in Atlanta. I have been talking with them for seven years, and they've never said no. They've always said, we're interested, let's talk next year. We're interested, let's talk next. And they always, they are constantly emailing me, asking me for more information, but it's been a long road with them. So I guess I would just say, keep, keep on keeping on. Yes. Perseverance. <laughs> so you spent that whole two week period in the NICU, staying at the hospital. How were you managing to take care of yourself? Cause you had just undergone a major surgery. Yes. Um, I don't really think I was managing to take care of myself in those two weeks in the NICU. Um, you know, the parents, we had a shower and all that stuff, but I really was there 24-7 for Stephen. Um, now, after I got home, things changed, and I certainly took time for myself. But um, I don't know, when, when your baby's in the NICU, um, you know, all you want is for them to be home, some normalcy. And the whole, I had already been in the hospital for several days prior to having him, you know? Um, so I, I just, my sole focus was getting him home, keeping him healthy, having him gain weight and getting him home. Um, but once I got home, I decided that the best way to catch up on Game of Thrones was during my maternity leave because I was breastfeeding in the middle of the night and no one was there. So I watched um, all the first three seasons of Game of Thrones in my first month of maternity leave. <laughs> that was my self-care. <laughs> nice. Nice. Netflix has has come in very handy for lots of new moms, yes. including me. <laughs> nice. So what else did you do during your matern maternity leave? Um, you know, I was still very involved in the business through my maternity leave, but I was really thankful that I had the flexibility that I had. Um, my assistant director at the time, Andrew Littlefield, and another employee of mine, Andrea, um, her name was Johnson at that time, it's Verberg now, really um, did an awesome job of running the show in my absence. Um, so I was still doing my own payroll. I was still running weekly staff meetings throughout my maternity leave. I was still dealing with new business leads and scheduling. 
Um, I even signed a new lease during that time and negotiated ourselves out of the old lease and started a build out on our new clinic um, during my maternity leave. So I was still really busy, but I was flexible and I was home with him. And I was thankful that I had 12 weeks instead of eight, like so many do, um, because he was early. You know, I mean, it wasn't until at 12 weeks, it was really like he was closer to eight weeks old, you know? Right. Um, I would never, ever, ever have been ready to leave him and go back to work at eight weeks. Never. Yeah. Yeah. Especially after all that you went through so early. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when when did you um, end up going back to working clinically and what was that experience like? So I when I went back to work, I went back starting two days a week and then I went back three days a week. I kind of ramped it up and I did not take on a caseload again until a year after my son was born. I did teach some kinder music classes um, as soon as I came back, but I really just worked administratively. And that was when we were doing the build out on our new clinic space, um, which we moved into in January of this year. So I was working a lot on that. And I didn't take on clients again until this past spring. Really? Yeah. And when you weren't working clinically, did you miss it? Did you feel like something was missing from your work? Or did you feel like everything else, plus having Steven at home, was kind of um, enough to have on your plate at that point? Um, both. I do, I am, you know, there are a lot of business owners that it's their plan to not treat. It's their plan to just work administratively and have others treat. And I have a really hard time with that mentality because I feel like as music therapists, I think any therapist, anyone who does anything similar to what we do, it's really important to keep your hand in the clinical side of things. Because how can I... uh, how can I supervise other music therapists and run a music therapy business if I am not actively treating and, and have a hand in the clinical side and knowing what current philosophies are out there and th- how things are changing in the therapy world? I just I really feel like it's important um, to keep my chops up where that's concerned. Um, but I simply did not have the time. And I, it would have been a travesty for me to be treating clients because I know I could not have given them my all. At that point, there was too much going on with the build out and getting out of our old lease and into our new lease. And we were hired, we were growing like crazy. And I needed to hire new employees and get them trained up. And I had new administrative staff coming on. And and then at the end of last year, my assistant director ended up moving to New York City. And so I had to there was just so many changes that had I been treating clinically, I think I would have felt like a sham. I would have felt like they deserved so much better than what I was able to give at that point. And I started treating again when I was able to give the way I needed to in a therapy session to be effective. I think it's so admirable of you that you had the self-awareness to know that that you didn't have everything you needed to give your clients at that time and that you didn't take on a caseload anyway. And that's something that that I sort of regret thinking back to after Parker was born, um, I took the 12 weeks off that, that summer and I returned to work in September and I took on my full caseload. I didn't like really ease into anything. I just went right back into it. And at this time it was just me. So, um, yeah. I had, I had an independent contractor also working for me at that time, but, um, but it was just me that worked with my caseload and <laughs> it was the hardest year ever because 
I just wasn't ready when I started and I had so much on my plate and, um, you know, my attention was so divided and I was still figuring things out as a mom and breastfeeding full time. And it was really, really hard. So if I had it to do all over again, I would have (laughs) figured something else out because that it was just way too much. And, you know, I think we just expect so much of ourselves all the time. And I have a feeling you and I have similar personalities mm-hmm. <laughs> where that's concerned. It's never others' expectations of us. It's our own expectations of us and yeah. letting ourselves down. And and so I was – I mean, I think it was easier for me in that I had so many employees working for me that when I went on maternity leave, I transitioned my caseload. My caseload had already been transitioned. So – it was easy for them to stay where they were with those therapists while I got back in the swing of things, you know? Right. Yeah. That's, that's so wonderful that you were able to do that and, um, that your clients still were able to receive the services because that was another thing that, um, I was disappointed about was having them have that, that lapse in services while I was on my maternity leave. But, um, but that's something that, you know, now that my company has grown and we've added more therapists that, you know, when they, when it comes time for them to have children and take maternity leaves, that we do have those things in place. So they don't have to go through what I went through. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about once you got back into the swing of, um, working clinically and, um, kind of starting to figure out things at home as a mom, what were some of the um, some of the really fulfilling aspects of being a mom, a working mom, and a business owner? There's <laughs> everything. Everything is more fulfilling now, um, and I, I mean, I I could explain that away in a million in a million different ways. I can explain that, but where I always felt like I had purpose. And I always felt so lucky to have found this awesome career path that was enjoyable and rewarding and all of those things um, and flexible with, with owning my own business. And once I had my son, I felt like I truly had a purpose in life. And it made everything else more purposeful, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes total sense. So much uh, sense. It was like, oh, okay, you know, I have this calling, but now I have purpose in my life. Um, every moment of every day holds purpose because there's always something. I, I, I work smarter, not harder. I've heard you say that. I've heard several music therapist moms say that. Whereas before, I could easily put in a 14-hour work day, um, you know, and, and not blink. That was just, I'm going to go in early and stay really late and get a bunch of stuff done. That's just not an option for me now, right? <laughs> So I've got to get it all done by 5.30 because I have to go pick up my son at daycare. Um, so I get in earlier. I get in before anyone else does so I can get all the emails done early in the morning. I prioritize better. Um, but but everything I do from parenting that, but also in my job has more purpose. I feel like I'm a more purposeful clinician. I feel like I truly – it's hard because – I remember before being a mom, I used to say, well, I don't have a child, but I have 30 kids on my caseload. I get it. But you don't. You don't get it until you're a parent. You don't get that 
parents just want other people to love their children. And when you have a child with special needs, one that may be nonverbal, um, that isn't able to communicate to you what's happening during their school day and what's happening in their therapy sessions and how people are treating them, um, that these parents want, they've always wanted to know and they always... <laughs> These parents need to know that you care and love their child. And as a therapist, we're told not to have dual relationships, right? But, but a parent needs to understand that you have the best interests of their child um, at heart and that you truly care for their child and want to see them grow. And it's not just an hour that you're working and, and making money. And so in I guess I've learned how to communicate that to my employees that don't have children in helping them communicate with their families and the caregivers so that they can communicate value in what they're doing in their sessions and so that they can let those families know, um, you know, just how much that they really care for the child, for the client, and it's not just a means to an end. I just feel like everything is more purposeful. Yeah. And now I, I understand. Now I get it. <laughs> Absolutely. And and I think about it the way that, you know, before I had kids, I had all the time in the world to to do all these things and to pursue all these work-related things. But now every moment that I have away from my children, that's a moment that I'm taking away from being with my child. And I need to put that to good use because yeah. otherwise I'm wasting that time that I could be spending with my child. So it's just brought a whole new level of clarity to the way that I work. And like you said, working smarter and not harder. And, yeah. um, you know, being the most purposeful and intentional clinician that you can, it's just brought a whole new perspective to me as well. And I think that's awesome that you're passing along that perspective to your staff too. Because, yeah, you really don't quite get it until you're in the shoes of, of a parent of your clients. Yeah. Well, I think back to all those times where, you know, there may have been a helicopter parent who wanted things done a certain way in a session. And as, as a therapist, I could say, well, no, that's not the right way to handle this because the research shows and evidence-based, you know, this is that. But in the moment, I couldn't get why the parent was fighting me on that, you know? Right. And now I get it. Now I understand that perspective and that maybe there just needs to be a little more hand holding, a little more time for this parent to jump on board with with the treatment plan or with the, you know, a, a behavioral plan or something like that. Um, it's just that perspective I think is really important as a clinician working with children. Um, but even the way I look at our older adult patients too, and I think about them as parents and their families and children and what it means to grow older and lose um, your ability to live independently and all those things. I just think it gives more perspective. It does. Yeah. Across the board, no matter what population you work with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jamie, what advice would you give to fellow music therapists? Maybe those who just had a child or um, own a business or are going back to work. Um, Parenthood is the best thing that will ever happen to you. I don't know why I waited so long. I hear so many young potential mothers and fathers, <laughs> young people saying, oh, well, I don't know if I want children or, um, you know, we're just going to wait. I'm not, I don't have time. That's always the excuse, right? I don't have time for children. 
Um, I said it for years and I don't think you have time not to have children. I just think it is, um, it will define you in a whole new way. I think it will change you as a person and certainly as a therapist. And I hope that everybody has the opportunity to be a parent. Yeah, that's beautiful advice. Thank you. (laughs) Well, one last question for you. Do you have any music therapy related news or projects that you'd like to share? We always have news and projects. Of course. Um, well, first, I would be remiss not to say to keep your eye out for our social media advocacy music video, which will be out in January for Social Media Advocacy Month. We have um, something pretty cool planned. We're pretty excited about it. So we've already started working on that. Oh, I can't wait to see. We will also be hiring another music therapist in January. So um, I will be sending that out on the social media boards and all that um, probably around the holidays. But we're looking to hire. Um, it'll be starting as a part-time caseload but billing to full-time with benefits. Um, employee, not independent contractor. And um, we're starting our first preschool intergenerational program with our largest assisted living facility contract in Atlanta in January as well. So Very exciting times at the George uh, Center. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jamie, thank you again for being on the podcast. It's so awesome that we got to wrap up the season with you and your beautiful story. So thank you again. I'm honored. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to send Jamie a message, you can contact her via email, jamie at thegeorgecenter.com. This is the last episode in the inaugural season of the podcast, and I'll be taking some time off to settle into 2016 before launching season two. I want to know what you want to hear on the podcast this next season, so please head over to guitarsandgranolabars.com to fill out a quick listener survey. Thanks again, and Happy New Year!